0: Good afternoon, everybody, or good evening. Uh, This is Patrick from the Poison Pen Bookstore, and we're here with another of our virtual events. We're really delighted to have, it's always exciting to have a debut novelist with us. And Lauren Nossett is going to be discussing her brand new book, The Resemblance. There it is. And uh, Lauren has signed a batch of books for us. There's a copy of that. And um, I'll go ahead and put a link in the comments field for those of you watching if you'd like to purchase one of our signed copies. Um, and our friend Ashley Winstead is very kindly joined us to to talk to Lauren a little bit today, and uh, she's done a couple of, of really great events with us in the past. Um, one day we'll get you out here live, you know, hopefully for Book Three, right? Um, we do have for live. Yeah, I came for
1: Housewife. You weren't you weren't there. You were in Hawaii, which is why you don't remember it. <laughs> which is an amazing, uh, amazing excuse.
0: <laughs> well, I've embarrassed myself in another no way. No, you so.
1: haven't. You know, I do it <laughs> all the time. I'll yeah. come back when
2: you're there, Patrick. How about That's that? right. It's, it's really hard have to some... keep up. But um, Ashley and um, I'm trying to think who, uh, Sandra Brown, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, Incredible. we had a wonderful Sandra time. time when we went out to Virtue to eat afterward. And it was right before Sandra and the giant storm and... Texas and I've never really checked back to see if for if she survived. I mean the house. <laughs> I know Sandra survived, but I was a little worried about you know um, about her because of the awful storm around where Yeah, she was. Was
1: yep. trouble. Yeah,
0: yep. Um, We still have some autographed copies of the new newest book here, Last Housewife, and I'll also put a, a link up to that in the comments field. But um, if you have questions for for Lauren or Ashley, go ahead and put them in and uh, Barbara usually brings me on screen towards the end of the hour. Be happy to ask any questions you might have. So Barbara, over to you. Thank you,
2: Patrick. It's a real pleasure to meet you. Nosset so, like Fawcett. We've already had this discussion, but for those of you <laughs> who are watching it, it's always good to get the author's name right. If you can, you can't really mess up Winstead. but <laughs> it's yeah. possible to. So Ashley has um, has written two really super um dark academic mysteries, particularly in my dreams I hold a knife, which also explores some of the violence and whatever in um, fraternity culture. And I think this this conversation is particularly apt, given what just happened at the University of Virginia and the kind of awful things that seem to be happening um, on campus or campus related crimes or school crimes. Um, it's not, I don't think it's something we all really want to think about, um, and I, I sort of like the British approach, you know, where they're in the hallowed halls at Oxford, and it's a lot more like Dorothy Sayers and Lord Peter Wimsey And the crimes are more elegant. They're not just, you know, the sort of awful and inexplicable, I might add, um, crimes that seem to happen here, but in fact, Lauren does a deep dive into fraternity culture and the resemblance, so... Um, But before we start that, I'd love to talk to you just about what is the dark academic subgenre, because it's suddenly come on strong. Remember when I said, Ashley, that I predicted two years ago that the Gothic was going to be the next big thing? But now I'm wondering if dark academic is is sort of an extension of the Gothic, or how do you see it? Lauren, how do you see it?
3: Yeah, I think, so I just did on Instagram, on my reading with Bowie account, I did the top 25 kind of campus novels, dark academia novels that had come out in the last decade, because really, I mean, for me, I I start thinking about that genre with the secret history, but that was 30 years ago. But the last ten years, we've seen so many titles. I mean, Ashley, with "In My Dreams," I hold a knife, right? Like that, to me, especially with the the complicated friend drama, going back to school, seeing you know what kind of threads I have unraveled uh, during the the college experience, and then going back and investigating that. There've been a lot of titles that investigate these kind of dark mysteries and what can happen when a bunch of young people are in this insular isolated community which a lot of college campuses are but I liked in my dreams I hold a knife because it it takes place at the fictional Duquette University is that how you say it yeah, yeah. Um, which is based in North Carolina right it's yeah is it
1: yeah, which I stole I from a bunch of colleges, so no one could accuse me of using a college. You were brave and used UGA, a real college. I don't I want anyone nervous. to pin me down.
3: <laughs> right, right, right. But I I love that because so many, um, like Barbara said, a lot of these dark academia or campus novels take place at the kind of Oxford, Cambridge's, or they yeah. take place at liberal arts colleges in the Northeast. And then there's something there's something fun about and different about setting one of these in the South.
1: Right. Yeah, I totally, totally agree, and that was kind of part of uh, a question that I wanted to ask you about why why Athens, um, you know, why Georgia, why fraternity culture specifically is your focus, but Barbara, I recall, and I have been shamelessly using and stealing <laughs> something you said when we talked, uh, crediting you, of course, but um, you said, you know, dark academia seems to be the new, you know, like, you um, manner locked room manner um, sort of format or setting um, that kind of like uh, enclosed rarefied air um, small group smaller group of, of characters who are all forced together and you've got a mystery to solve um, and I just thought that was so spot on um, that this is a kind of especially seeing the rise of it in the states, you know, by American authors in the last few years, thinking about um, academic institutions as our closest version of, you know, this really elite, rarefied air kind of institution, um, with you know the appropriate architecture, the beauty, the 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 Gothic architecture, um, and that's something that you, I think, that's why people love traditional dark academic settings, right? Because there's something just so seductive about the idea of like losing yourself in a gorgeous library and maybe you know there's secret passageways in this um, university that have been that's been around for hundreds of years. blah blah, blah, but you and I chose a different path with this kind of southern setting. Um, and I think of it as a little more democratizing, like trying to um, know most readers, most people, myself included, don't have that Ivy League um, experience. But we, there's a a lot of like um, there's a lot to be mined in an academic experience like a state school or, you know, my fictional college. So I kind of just want to linger and ask you about the South and fraternity culture and what kind of drew you to taking dark academia there.
3: Yeah, I think I think you're right that you. It's a different student body, right? That's at a that's at a state college or a big public university, and then too, there even though it still can can be an isolated community. If you set it at a big university like the UGAs of the world, you're talking about an isolated community of thirty to forty thousand students. True. Yeah, this is an isolated community of maybe. 10,000 or 5,000, it's just, a, it, it opens up, it's still that locked door kind of mystery where you you assume it is someone within this close um, body of friends or within mm-hmm. this, this close community, but at the same time, this community is a lot larger, and then it allows perhaps for an investigation of, of other things going on within the community, because a lot of times I think the other, the, the draw of some of these campus novels, and even um, one of the first kind of campus novels I remember reading was a separate piece, John Knowles, a separate piece. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you have this sense of they're all, so this is a boarding school, but these boys are at the boarding school and it seems like they're they're safe and protected from the outside world. But really the realities of the war that are going on outside slowly start to, to shape and affect their lives, despite feeling this sense of security and mm-hmm. I think that's something else that uh, and Barbara was talking about this earlier is you feel or there's a sense of of safety because you're you're in this isolated community there's this focus on education there's structures that are familiar and it can give you a, a false sense of the cure of security both both as a reader right mm-hmm. when you're diving into the story but but as we've seen, even with the events um, Barbara referenced, the really tragic tragic events that happened this week is, you're you're not actually protected from the outside world. You're still living in it. You know, there's always this talk, and it would bother me as someone who's who was a student for so long and who worked in academia for so long. But the real world versus yeah. you know the the academic world or the student world or whatever and no that's part of the real world too and of course you're still affected by real world issues and students are are dealing with real life issues while they're yeah. students you know and and the, the the surrounding community and world can affect them just like it co- affects everyone else but while they're you know potentially not in their support system, right? They don't have, you know, perhaps their family to turn to their close group of friends. And so they really are in this new setting while they're navigating still real world things just slightly different because of the setting that they're in.
2: Don't you think that for a long time, the greater danger um, was usually directed towards women, you know, rape and so forth on campus was Mm -hmm. a big thing. But what's interesting, I think in your book is that the violence really, is falling upon young men. And Ashley has has dealt with that too. And I, you know, it isn't just campus mysteries. Um, I mean, because a lot of people choose to to write a, a crime novel at a class reunion where basically they're not still in school, but it was what happened in school that, you know, so it's like it's really like going back, you know, to that to that same circle. But the the British what I find also interesting is the level of violence because you go back and read Gaudy Night by, you know, Dorothy Sayers, it's very elegant, it's academic. And, you know, a lot of academic mysteries where they had like, literary or, you know, it, it was, um, I don't, I don't want to say more refined crime, because I don't think that's really fair. But, you know, um, there was more of a, there wasn't so much just plain violence.
1: Yeah. And,
2: and now we're seeing, as we did in the shooting the other day, you know, how do you explain that? You know, people shot on a bus. I mean, there's nothing elegant about that um, no. at all. And if you're going to be writing contemporary crime novels, I think you have to adjust to that reality. That campus crime is taking on a different aura. Even the It Girl by, you know, Ruth Ware is another. Mm-hmm. Um, or Ellie Griffith's um, Bleeding Heart Yard. I spoke to her earlier today. is different when you read your book, it's just a different world.
1: Yeah. And I, I will say that something I think, well, okay, I've, that that brought up a ton of thoughts. And the first one is that um, like dark academia is not just this like this crime on campus, but is also an aesthetic in its own right. Right. So that's why you look on Instagram and, and Tumblr and you have just hundreds of thousands of posts of of people dressing up in the dark academic plaid and you know and so it's it's um it's got a whole flavor and a whole um yeah just a kind of aesthetic sensibility that I think the resemblance really taps into um can I read like the first paragraph of your first chapter because I think like that will that will it's like perfectly encapsulates what I mean by dark academic aesthetic I, I would love that
3: okay I'm always really um,
1: flattered when people like pull out lines from the book to
3: read or that they say that they like it so I yes oh, please. love
1: it <laughs> I'm gonna backtrack later and and gush about your book as a segue to more questions because I just loved it okay so this is your first the first chapter of the resemblance and it starts in my mind's eye it's always autumn in Athens. Those sweltering days of summer are immediately forgotten when the first red leaf twists off its branch. On North Campus, a gold-winged elm and scarlet oak stand like sacred guardians, ancient harbingers of wisdom and secrets. Just before the unadorned face of new college, a sugar maple shudders in the wind but despite the breeze stirring the leaves on the pavement, the day is heating up. There's a trickle of sweat between my shoulder blades and there's something else, something I can't quite define, a tingling under my skin, a shadow at the corner of my eye, a feeling that the world's askew and waiting to write itself. Okay, so just in that, that beginning paragraph, we are on campus, it's fall, the leaves are turning, there's, you know, something unsettling in the air. That's like check, 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 all all of your dark academic aesthetics just kind of weaving together right off the bat. And I think that that is something just as much as the the kind of campus setting and the idea of like untangling a mystery at college that people are here for the aesthetics of it. What do you think, Lauren? Like how much did you think about that? when you were writing The Resemblance.
3: Yeah, I think it's interesting too, because you mentioned, of course, it takes place in fall. And, yeah. you know, the college and the U.S. system, most students go to college in fall and spring, but there's something about fall that's right. back to school that really, you know, you think of, sweater weather and all of them cozy coffee drinks and you know if you think of the liberal arts you know colleges that we talked about studying by a fire or something but of course I mean you live in Texas I'm in Georgia I mean when school starts in the fall you know end of August beginning middle of August whenever it is it's still 80 degrees oh, here yeah uh, so, you know, and so this is I, I had to think about that where and I said it actually November 12th. So just a few days ago is kind of when the the story begins. And and it is just now cold in Georgia but really when when fall starts it's it's not cold at all so all those those things that I associate with dark academia and the genre because so often it is placed in the northeast or or in Oxford Cambridge you kind of have to mess with that timeline a little bit to get that like a fall vibe that
1: yeah that's such a good point with yeah with these southern dark academic novels you kind of have to fudge (laughs) (laughs) and <laughs> say like, well, there was a bunch of semester and now it's November when it's, you know, dark yeah, academic time.
3: Yeah, And the days are getting shorter. I think that plays into it, right? The nights are lengthening. Yeah. Um, my editor said something interesting when we were talking about the, the rise of this genre, especially now, right? Why now? And he yeah. was saying a whole generation of of people, so younger people, especially, you know, the ones on TikTok and uh, that are dressing in the Stark academia aesthetic, who grew up reading Harry Potter and really Mm -hmm. wanted to go to Hogwarts. And so there's this kind of love of that setting. Mm -hmm. And of course, the same thing, you know, Hogwarts, this fictionalized school, they feel really safe, right? But then there's this this evil on the outside that slowly infiltrates, which is very, that that, again, that very common uh trope that we find in dark academia um so but yes I did think about that and as someone who really loves the genre it was important for me to to set it in the fall um I will say there will be another book coming that's set in the spring so that's kind of interesting to think about um in terms of you know, what, what's the leaves look like? <laughs> and what is the, what is the climate like? Yeah, that, I, the-
1: okay, that skipped right to, I was going to ask you about that because I was so hopeful that there was going to be another.
3: Yes, yeah, so we, we will see Detective Marlette Kaplan again, but you know, in a, in a, still in the university setting, but looking at a different side of university life. Um. And then her, without any spoilers, kind of with, with what she's experienced through the first book, she has a slightly different relationship um with with the police force what she thinks
1: about justice all of those things that she kind of has to reconcile in book two so oh I'm so excited so we we dove like right into dark academia and I, I have more questions for you about that but can you just like maybe for viewers who haven't read your your um book synopsis just give like a quick uh, grounding description of what this is about
3: yeah, of course. So so the resemblance, it's a murder mystery. It takes place in Athens, Georgia at the University of Georgia. We begin with a fatal hit and run on the university campus. Uh, the detective who's first on the scene, she is the daughter of a UGA professor. And she, for her own personal reasons, in addition to just the way that the, the student is dressed, immediately suspects that this the student who's been the victim of the hit and run um, is a member of Greek life, and that Greek life might have even been involved with his death. And so the witnesses who are there at the scene of the crime, they all agree on two things. One is that they, they think that the, the driver of this car um, is identical to the victim. And that he was smiling and so there's this kind of sinister sinister aspect to it as well that of course reinforces everything that detective marlette kaplan thinks um, about greek life and and
1: what their involvement might be oh i love her i love a prickly protagonist (laughs) he's just (laughs) not gonna let anyone tell them uh what they are and aren't gonna do okay this this is the part where i gush because i absolutely love this book um, and for, for all those watching, this is just such a fabulous mystery and such an amazing addition, I think, to the dark academic canon. And I read um, this book this spring, this past spring, and I was actually traveling through Scotland while I was reading your book. Um, and I did not want to leave my hotel room because I just wanted to stay and read. Um, oh, so that's about, that. Yeah, that's the highest endorsement I can possibly give is I, I didn't want to go on my vacation. Um, so it is absolutely gripping. Um, can I say
3: that we actually, we connected a year ago, over a year ago, through the kind of bookstagram community, because I had read in my dreams, I hold a knife and had kind of posted a picture with my dog Bowie, which I do a lot with reviews, and had struck up a conversation It's so lovely to then have had you read and blurb the book and then now be talking face to face for the first time after kind of messaging. I always say that the, the bookstagram on Instagram community is the best part of the internet because it really allows for these kind of relationships. And it's so cool to to be able to have this conversation and
1: yeah, I was a fan
3: fan of me first. So, you
1: know, (laughs) That, thank you. That's uh, you. My lighting isn't good, but I'm blushing. If you if you can't see that, um, yeah. I hope Bookstagram stays the way it is. Um, you know, for all time. So it is such a lovely, wonderful corner of the internet where, you know, you meet so many wonderful people. Um, yeah. And and I. Okay. So we've talked about like dark academia. Your desire to write in that genre, kind of place this book in this this sub genre that really started with the secret history 30 years ago, but has seen this boom recently for a lot of these reasons. Um, but what what like drew you or inspired you to write this uh, particular story? Like, do you remember when uh, you were sitting there maybe with your laptop or maybe taking a walk, however you, you write uh, and create, and just thought, wow, this is the start of something. Like, how does that come to you, a character, dialogue? where did it start?
3: Yeah, I actually, for this one, I have a distinct memory. It started with Marlit. It started with her. She does have this really strong voice. And I remember it was late at night and I just had this, it's something that happens midway through the book. Um, it, it When I first started, it, it was the prologue, but then it was moved uh, midway through the book where she finds herself in this really precarious situation I don't want to I feel like if I say it, it might be a spoiler but yeah. I just I sat down I heard I I saw where she was in that situation I heard her tell it in her voice mm-hmm. and it just sat down and I wrote that scene and I will say that rarely happens where I actually you know have a whole scene that I am able to sketch out but it was just her voice was so strong in that moment mm-hmm. and I sat down and, and wrote it and so it really started with her the, the her as a I don't even know that I knew she was a te- detective at that point. Yeah. It was just in this situation, and it started with her voice. Um, yeah, and it was late at night. And I remember sitting down in this big kind of armchair, just like furiously. I think I must have. A lot of times when I get ideas, I type it in my phone. There's something about notes in my phone versus typing it on the computer that's mm-hmm. feels less like work. Um, and I've also learned that if I write it down when I'm really excited, I can't read my handwriting yeah. later. So- Better to at least have it somewhere I can, you know, send it to send it to a word doc. So yeah, it really started with her. And then I think it was months later that I was going to bed and I thought of the mystery, you know, what would ultimately be mm. a mystery. And then I I combined those. Um oh, so because of those was first. She was first. Yeah, she was absolutely, I mean, which makes a lot of sense just based on her personality that she would kind of insist in my in my head to be first. first. It started with her.
1: Um, I do the notes in the phone thing too, but I have very lazy thumbs that don't want to type for for that long. Um, and I guess, yeah, that's how I type. And so all they're never very useful because I try to shorten every word. Um because I'm just, you know, can't be bothered to to type whole things out. So I admire your your notes app discipline with that. So do
3: you write you write in your computer or do
1: you write freehand? Oh no, I write in my computer. I also um cannot read my own handwriting, mostly because I grew up thinking that cursive was really the only way, you know, it's like the fanciest way to write. So it was the only way I should write. And so now my um my handwriting looks like someone trying to be a fairy tale princess. (laughs) It takes me about 30 (laughs) minutes to write uh, a a paragraph. So uh, yeah, it's all typing.
3: I didn't, for me, there's something about sitting at the computer. It feels like work and which of course I have to do at some point, but at the beginning stages, I really love writing in my that feels more inspired for what i guess because i can if i'm on a walk or something and think of whatever it is i can type i can't talk into my phone though i talked um to someone recently and she said that's how she wrote is she'd be on a rock walk or run and she dictates to her phone but to me i have to see i have to see the text the language like writing otherwise if i'm talking i feel less articulate For whatever reason you're just a
1: visual so, person i feel I guess, or maybe okay. that's how it works
2: for so you. lauren you're you're referencing earlier work this is a debut novel so tell us what earlier work it is you're talking about uh
3: well so i guess i was a I was a professor and so i've written books from a scholarly perspective and articles from a scholarly per- perspective but i also i've written um this is my seventh novel i've finished it's the first work of fiction I have published. So I had to write, I think a lot of not great books before I got to, to a book where I I felt like I had something. So for all the writers out there, keep, keep going at it because oh, yeah, yeah it me seven, seven tries and there, there are six, you know, books saved on my hard drive that are full, you know, 90,000, whatever thousand word books, but they, they just weren't right, you know. So, what do you
2: think that? What do you think they were lacking that um, didn't arouse enough interest in a publisher to? But what what were the weaknesses that you think you had?
3: Uh, plot. <laughs> so I I was trying to write literary fiction, and I think for, because that's what I was reading. Um, but for me, writing a mystery there's already th- these rules that you have to follow, right? You you have a direction, right? There is a crime that needs to be solved. And then you just go from that point where I was trying to write literary fiction. I think I, I needed more parameters, you know, just um, just having something that was character driven wasn't enough for me. Well, I do
2: think that's a a huge benefit of crime, especially for new authors or mystery, is that there's Mm -hmm. a scaffolding, and you know it does it does allow you to structure. Laurie King and I have had this discussion many times, um, and with other authors, Um, and it you know it, it you do need a story. I mean, you really you know characters are wonderful, and you know plot should arise from character and what they will do. Landscape is terrific, all the rest of it. Um, but if you're going to have an actual story, you know, you do need some kind of a of a structure. And you know, I've had lots of conversations. I myself like, I like investigations because my mind works best if I start somewhere and I move forward towards. You know, it must be the legal training or something. Um, I don't do as well with the really twisty psychological drama where you're never quite sure where you are and you're not mm-hmm. ever sure where you're going to end up. Um, right. I mean I, I read them and I like them and some of them are wonderful but my own my own mind works better in in the more straightforward you know police procedural or private eye novel or whatever it is where things move forward and and I do think that that is um, the, the the sort of puzzle aspect of it also I think is often important to readers I mean there, there isn't really a puzzle to solve in a lot of psychological fiction that comes out at the moment you're just there for the ride right you hang on and it goes wherever it's going to go and then you go wow and there's another twist and whatever but but it's it's not really likely the reader can't work it out that's sort of the point right
1: oh yeah that that haunts me (laughs) Uh is
2: stumping readers yeah yeah Uh. so you know I, i it makes perfectly good sense that you would finally have come to you know, publishing a novel because you solved the structure problem. But now that you've seen it, that doesn't mean that, you know, you can't maybe resurrect some of your literary fiction and actually embed a plot in it.
1: Yeah,
3: I I think so. Someone asked me that the other day at a talk, if there were any ones that I would resurrect. And I thought, there's one of the six. There's one. There's
2: maybe parts of one, you know, I mean, you know, not... Yeah, I mean, books are made up of so many different things that I feel like nothing's ever really wasted for a writer.
3: sometimes you need a uh, more life experience right like it's something that maybe now you know with a few few years and other experiences that i've had you know i can go back to some of these novels with a new perspective so i think but but to me it's the fun thing is coming up with new ideas so it's uh, you always want to start the new the new mystery and whenever i'm getting close to finishing one, I know that I'm getting close because I have an idea for another one that I really want to start. And I, I resent having to finish the one I'm working on because to, I I think, I mean, I don't know how you are, Ashley, if you have so many just starts of ideas that you have and want, you know, people always want to give you ideas as an author. And it's like, the ideas aren't the problem. It's yeah. Like
1: it's the follow through.
3: <laughs> yeah, exactly. The idea is great. You know, I can sit down and write a 3,000 word idea, but then I have to write the next 97,000 words to finish it and make everything Uh, work.
1: I am laughing because we are so much the same on so many levels. Like I also, the ideas are not the problem. That's, I I know I'm finishing close to the end of one book when the next one won't let me go. Um, And I too, coming out of academia, struggled with plot. Um, And, and, you find academia, I like that. <laughs> I do, I do, because, like you said, um, the ki- I wasn't reading a ton of genre fiction in my Ph.D. program. You know, I was reading just literary fiction, really. It was a really narrow focus, and so you get it in your head that what I'm using this in, in scare quotes, but what good books are are that sort of like model of, of literary fiction and even more in particular, like the MFA program since the 1960s version of literary fiction, that's just kind of like dominates the market. Um, and so that just wasn't working for me, for my brain or my voice. Um, so it's so funny. And it was when I switched to um, mystery writing as well, that all of a sudden things gelled and I felt like I took off. Um, oh,
3: that's, that's fast. Okay, well, I have,
1: a, I know you're sp- supposed to be asking me questions,
3: but I have a, a question because <laughs> you did these two kind of mystery, mystery campus novels, right, yeah. I hold a knife and that last housewife, but in between you did a romance, which is the only romance I've ever read and I loved it. Um, And I uh, recommend it to so many people who I know are romance readers who have also, also loved it. But how did you go from, yes, the ac- academia background to the campus novel to me, that makes sense because that's what I did. But yeah. with then, like, romance in between, I think, is really wonderful and and also makes it so that you're not you know typecast into a certain kind of writing either because you broke it up this way. But.
1: Yeah, no, that. Well, thank you for reading that book and and I'm so happy you enjoyed it. I like I just go where my brain goes and it's really hard to contain it. I've been lucky enough to have my publishing team let me do that so far um we'll see how long that lasts um but i will stay say a consistent theme is just really stealing shamelessly from my professional life so there was a coming out of academia it was dark academia um the characters in my romance book and and future romance book are involved in the world of politics where i moved after you know academia so it's mostly just me sitting around at my day jobs thinking like you know it would be a lot more fun <laughs> if, there, if there was you know some some murder to solve or some uh, you know it would be great if there was you know an ex-boyfriend showed up right now an office um, <laughs> that is just the, oh, the through line
3: well I mean they they say to write what you know and I mean that's that's very much for me setting these novels in the in the campus setting in the ac- academic setting that's yeah. very much what I know and I'm so impressed by people who do the world building involved in fantasy right oh, yeah. I'm sure they're still taking characters and and you know aspects from their lives but just that that kind of world building or in sci-fi is just amazing to me as someone who who feels like I write what's it is it what is very
1: close to home so well I have to ask speaking of close to home are you are you currently a professor like working as a or are you full-time novelist now so right
3: now, full-time novelist, I will say I miss teaching. The yeah. My last year of teaching was in 2021 and that was, we were on Zoom, you know, teaching still, oh, which is kind of sad. I that can't the last, even imagine. As classes I taught were, were not in the classroom. They were, you know, on the computer. But um, so yeah, so not teaching. I was teaching though when I wrote both the first and the, the second book. Um, so they, you know, but I wasn't at UGA. So I think there is something about not being right in the setting in which I'm writing and even the the UGA which is of course a fictionalized version of of the university but it's also a nostalgic version of the university it's it's more probably similar to the university that existed a decade ago when I was Mm -hmm. there um, than than what it was when I was when I was writing the book. Um,
1: I was gonna ask about reactions from your from your like fellow faculty and, and students to hear. Cause I, I too like jumped out of academia and then wrote my dark academic <laughs> book. Um, so yeah, brave to did, do it. Um...
3: So when I I did a reading last week in Richmond, which is where I taught at Randolph Macon College. And that's where I was when I was writing um, both of the books. So I was in Virginia writing these books set in, in Georgia. Um, and it was nice. A lot of my old colleagues, um, professor colleagues came out and um were there and they've been super supportive. And I think, you know, we're all, you know, within the university, we're were critical of certain aspects of it from the inside too. So I don't think it was. And, and even with Greek life, I think we can, you know, on one hand acknowledge that in a in a setting and in a world where students are feeling increasingly isolated and alienated and are struggling with mental health issues uh, among so many other things, Greek life, Greek letter institutions can offer a community um, to mm-hmm. students who are, who are away from their their friends and family. And at the same time, there are problematic um, behaviors that are part of this culture that can have really tragic consequences. Um, And so for me, I think
2: it's more brutal for boys than do you think fraternity culture is more difficult than sorority culture?
3: I think we've seen, in terms of fatalities um, that are related to to Greek life incidents, there's been more fatalities associated with fraternities but i think this culture and uh marlit uh, the detective who she says she kind of collects the the misdeeds of greek life and and these statistics um oh and if for people interested in in more the um nonfiction side of this um john heshinger has a book called true gentlemen and he he was at he uh, he spent about two years uh, f- uh, with different fraternal organizations across the U.S. and has written a, a book on on that experience and a book on different both fatalities but also the sexual assault that happens um, at some of these parties. So I think it's it's dangerous for both, but for different reasons. Um, and so this this book in particular looks at the effect. Primarily, I think it's interested too in this this perpetrator victim cycle. Like that's something that um, the novel, it's something I was interested in these power dynamics, but then something that the novel itself uh, investigates. But I think, so Marlette quotes a lot of these uh, statistics that have come out recently, um, like the fact that Women who are, you know, in in sororities are more likely to be raped, and that men in fraternities are more likely to commit rape, and those are based on studies that have come out recently. Um, and then the fact that every year, at least one fraternity member dies in a fraternity related incident. And when I was finishing the the draft of this novel, that was in 2019. And that year, five men at five different universities died in fraternity related incidents, mm-hmm. uh, which is so, I mean, so unnecessary, so tragic when you think of all the friends and families. Um, you know, I know both both Ashley and I have experienced sudden loss this, you know, this past year, and it's just to think that that happens to anyone is just awful. Or that you could send your your student off to college and they don't come home, right? And so there are, as much as it can offer a community, there are real problems that need to be addressed um, within, these, within these. Well, there
2: situations. are. I mean, you know, you're you're so right. That for me, I went um, I went from Chicago to Stanford. And I was kind of, I was too young. I was one of those students that back in the, in the fifties was jumped up courses. So I was barely 17 when I went 2000 miles away from home. And it was a very strange culture because Stanford allowed fraternities, but it outlawed sororities. So the boys had all of the structure of Greek life with its pros and cons, but the women were faced with a lottery system. We didn't even get to choose who we live with or the places that we lived for a first couple of years. So it was very difficult to cope with no real sense of community. Um, You know, uh, I've forgiven myself for a few mistakes I made because now I recognize, you know, that that was probably not in any condition to actually make them. But I would have liked, my mother was the president of um, her uh, Delta Gamma at Northwestern and she had a hugely positive experience of, back in the thirties of um, sorority life. And, you know, it was just very strange for me. I felt like there was a part of my college experience that I never got to have and that I would have benefited from it. But I'm wondering if that's changed because I'm talking about the end of the fifties because, you know, I went in 58 and graduated in 62 and life is so dramatically different now, I wonder if I would have the same reaction, if I were, you know, young and starting out today, because I don't have any real experience with contemporary academic life.
3: Yeah, and I mean, oh, go ahead. ahead. Oh, well, I I was going to say, so I went to Georgia, my mom also went to Georgia, um, and she was a KD, and so really wanted me to, to be a part of sorority. For her, it did, she was also shy she's not anymore but at the time she was and that that was how she she made friends and actually I think she really feels like the the friends she had there some of whom she still keeps in contact with they brought her out of her shell and really changed and I think maybe offered that part of that experience that that she felt like you were missing. That was, you know, a, a huge part of her experience, and I think why she enjoyed um, the college life. And to this day, I mean the the Greek letter institute or organizations they offer so much in terms of, and I will say I wasn't a member of a sorority, but I did go to fraternity parties. <laughs> so I, I was around um, that community and what what, uh, you know, the kind of social network that it offered. To but Ashley, I didn't mean to interrupt you.
1: No, no, I was just thinking about, um, you know, the, I don't think that the phenomenon of having vastly different rules for fraternities and sororities has changed. Um, because when I went to school, um, you know, it, it was still it had been and, and was still and I believe is still a thing that, you know, there were sororities and fraternities, but fraternities were allowed to have parties. On campus, in their houses, and uh, sororities weren't, and fraternities were like allowed to live in their house more, more male members or more members, and sororities were limited because you know there were laws against c- creating brothels. Literally, that was that was what <laughs> that was what prohibited um, you know people from living in sorority houses. So, the, if you think about the uh, effect that has on power dynamics. And social life, everyone is going to the fraternities for parties, you know, the fraternity houses are where you're meeting people, where you're drinking. So as a young woman, you're always kind of traipsing. It's never on your own home turf, right? Your own territory. You're not in control of what this party looks like. You're always entering um, this this space of the fraternity. Um, And I love, cause Lauren, I, um power and privilege and inside and outside are such play like such huge roles who has power um how power corrupts you know the people whose hands it does find its way into and so i'd love to just ask you about that cuz that's just such a huge part of this book um you know through you exploring the greek system at uga so can you talk about like privilege um in this book and what Greek what the Greek culture looked like in the resemblance.
3: Yeah, yeah. And so the, the Greek culture, and it does, sororities play a role, but of course, not as big of a role as the fraternities that Marlit is investigating. And she's primarily focused on in investigating Capo, which is a fictional, that's not a real fraternity. That's that's one I made up for the book. But that is the fraternity that the, the victim of this fatal hit and run belonged to. Mm-hmm. And so as she's investigating this fraternity, she meets um, people with both both privileged members and the not privileged members Mm -hmm. so one of the members for example he's there on scholarship right he's not some of the moneyed uh, elite that often are are a part of these fraternities but there's another fraternity member who is the son of the university president and so to a certain extent he gets a free pass in terms of his behavior and gets away with a lot of bad behavior because of this connection. And this is something that Marlit and the novel really investigates too, is that these these cycles of power and privilege and looking the other way and what uh, lessons these students are learning in their college years, so they're really formational years, how that could potentially play out into their you know, there are jobs in the future where they are often these well-connected, privileged um, men who are going to draw on the connections that they already, that that they're establishing in this Greek life. They're going to reach out to their alumni networks to get these jobs, have high positions, and then just repeat these cycles Mm -hmm. of power, but also potentially learning that they can get away with bad behavior because of the positions that they're in, they might continue these behaviors into, into their careers, whatever places of responsibility they find themselves with potentially even greater
1: consequences. Yeah, I so something I love about Marlet is that, you know, I think Amy Gentry said in an article she wrote for Crime Reads when she was talking about dark academia as a genre, that one of the central tropes is that fish out of water. So in dark academic novels, you're usually following a protagonist who is somehow, whether, you know, it's because they have less privilege than the people at the school that they're going to or whatever, you know, they are the outsider, bringing that outside outsider perspective. And Marlet is an outsider you know, in every way you can be really. She's an outsider when it comes to investigating Greek life on campus. And then she's an outsider again within her own like job, within her own, the police department, because you see this perpetuation of the old boys club that she's watching, you know, the young version of on campus and the fraternity kind of play out. Something I love, and I hope this isn't like spoiling anything, but something I love about Marlot and her relationship with her fellow police officers is that she feels like as a young woman they constantly want to shield and protect her and that is something that drives her nuts and she just wants to you know she feels that as infantilization um, and it's like the most um, saccharine and kind version of you know uh, misogyny that that you can get but it's still she feels that as a so can you talk to us about Marla as this outside force kind of bringing her perspective?
3: Yeah, I, I think one thing I loved about her is that she is the the daughter of a professor. So to a certain extent, she she has this insider outsider perspective where she's grown up in this world right in a in a college town but you're right she's not she's not a part of that world but she has this inside knowledge that allows her to critique certain aspects of it because she is familiar with this outsider perspective as the daughter of a professor and then you're right and I think this is another um, thing I wanted to play with setting it in the south is there is this Mm southern chivalrous nature that can be incredibly patronizing and that is what she experienced where like her lieutenant for example wants to protect her from all the bad cases because she's a woman so the the men in in the you know in the homicide unit are assigned whatever cases but He wants to, he sees him as a father figure and her as a daughter figure, and it creates this hierarchy beyond just the professional, right, lieutenant detective hierarchy that extends just because of her, her gender, because she's a woman. And so it was really interesting because from the lieutenant's perspective, he's protecting her, right, that again is that patronizing, um, chivalrous nature, but, you know, for her, she really has to fight back to be able to find her her place on the forest to, and then to be taken seriously when she does have real concerns. Uh, she's to a certain extent, she's dismissed, right? Um, yeah. What she thinks and, and why she thinks. And even though some of it, she she does have her own reasons, her own prejudices, but she also knows these statistics and she's, in a way, she's more familiar with this um, college world, this uh, academic world, than her peers because of mm-hmm. her kind of inside knowledge with with her mother. But she's she's always discounted. And and to me, I like. Protagonists and detectives who who have to come into conflict to prove themselves to to yeah. um, you know that kind of additional tension as they're solving the mystery. So that was a uh, even though it was frustrating for Marlit, uh, a fun place to write from for me as the writer.
1: I love that, and I was thinking as Barbara was talking earlier about loving investigations um, that your book like sits in between you know, this kind of dark academic, which tends to be, you know, you've got your students on campus and there's something, you know, with, with It Girl or, or some of my books and, and, or Amy Gentry, other folks who are writing, but yours is this kind of, the resemblance is kind of this um, amazing meld between this investigation since the protagonist is a police officer and that dark academic novel. And she kind of uses the fact that she's a young woman to slip between those two worlds. Um, and I think that's that. That was just so fascinating to read. I loved that. Thank you.
2: It seems to me that a common theme, well, not common, but oftentimes what you have, you know, in students is that you have people who are fizzing with hormones, and you know, their judgment is not all that great, and they're inclined to do really stupid things. Particularly, I think boys more so than girls, and and those stupid things. It becomes clear can affect their entire lives. And so it often just leads to cover-up. Either they try to cover it up, their friends try to cover it up, or their parents, or whoever the adult responsible for them tries to cover it up. And that I think plays out in the class reunion mystery. There's usually something that happened that got covered up, which is Ellie Griffiths' bleeding heartyard that I was mentioning to Lauren is. Really, a wonderful book it's 21 years after they were in school and yet something that happened in school drives you know what's happening too and that's true in the it girl the ruth ware book that yeah. you wrote this summer um, but you know you are you know you're dealing with late adolescence which is the time when people are more inclined to do dumb things than probably any other time in their entire life and they don't consequences are not um are not part of that you know not really thinking about consequences. I mean, we've seen that play out on a national scale pretty recently, you know, consequences aren't part of, you know, thicker stout there. Um, And well, I've tried to be tactful. Arizona State. You're being so tactful. (laughs) I know. Um, But I mean, you really do see it, you know, if you, you have basically a you know, kind of a giant frat boy who was, you know, in charge for a while. Yuck. <laughs> there have um, been
1: many of them, Barbara. <laughs>
2: yeah. Um, but I, I, you know, I, I think that from a plot standpoint, you've got all kinds of, um, you know, potential crimes and so forth that you can create out of this pool that are not going to stretch credulity at all, because, you know, we all know, and we probably all did things that That were rash or things that, um, you know, some of us escape really serious consequences and some of us didn't. Um, Some of us regret them. Some of us, you know, don't, whatever. But it's just an interesting time of life. It's a really interesting time of life for you to be depicting. Um, And so I, I think that's part of the appeal of the dark academic is that maybe more mature readers can kind of remember, you know, what it was like and think either I had a lucky escape, or I wish I'd thought of that, or whatever, you know, <laughs> Take I think oftentimes, as we as we grow older, certainly for me, and it's something that's come up recently with other authors, and all, as we age, the things that we that we regret are the things we didn't do much more than the things that we did do, we learn to forgive ourselves for the dumb things that we did. But you can't really recover the things that you turned away from Um, and so that can play into it too because really college is what's going to shape the future for so many of these these people i know it's a fascinating genre i really 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 like it it.
1: my agent has asked me many times like why do you keep returning to college you Mm -hmm. know for for a setting and i Mm -hmm. think it's you just hit it spot on barbara it's like this really attractive um, moment of possibility in a lot of people's mm-hmm. lives um where you've got those hormones fizzing um but you also have like in the back of your head that there's a, kind of an excuse for your whatever behavior you end up indulging in because you are it's like this is the time of life to do it and you do have those hormones fizzing and so there's just so much possibility there and it can skew really dark and it can skew really mm-hmm. great
2: Think about the Amish, you know, they have something called a gap year, there are several really good Amish mysteries and one of the features is they bring these children up, you know, in a pretty rigid setting, very controlled, and they are allowed, basically, what the British call a gap year, they call it the but basically, they're allowed to go off in the world and, you know, raise whatever hell they want and do it and decide whether they want to come back and lead the more traditional disciplined life. Um, of their Amish community. And I think that's such a wise thing, you know, I mean, some of them don't fare well, obviously. Um, But I think, I think at least it gives them a chance. And I think the British idea of a gap year before you go to college is a really good idea, you know, to to just give yourself some world experience and think about what it is that you want to do. Um, I often wish the American educational system allowed that, you know, it, it allowed a gap year between high school and going on to college. You know, it's,
1: it's so striven, just you know, go go college, right, right. into your job, you know, or grad school. Um, yeah,
2: there's a lot of pressure there. So anyway, a fertile field. Patrick, come and yes. join us and tell us if there's <laughs> anything you want to contribute.
0: Yeah, I was on like the seven-year plan, I think, something like that. <laughs> um, Love it. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's such an interesting microcosm, isn't it? I mean, and not just the students, but the faculty, you know, is is fertile ground. Uh, yeah. I'm sure for writing about, you know, because it's a place, at least in the English department where I was, um, you know, it sort of protects its eccentrics, and um, and you can have, I'm sure, some really interesting pathology going on with some professors. I know we all met them. Um, I know there was somebody, the professor that was that was sort of a predatory character who was, you know, preying on young TAs, uh, grad students. Um,
2: yeah, but then so. there's the whole question of battling it out for academic, you know, stardom and the whole bit. I mean, yeah. Tom Millerman's Thief of Time, if you, neither of you read it, he won an Edgar for it In the entire plot is driven by academic rivalry.
1: Oh, I need to read that.
2: Yeah. yeah. Also, Bad yeah. Habits
1: by Amy Gentry. I know I've, I've like name-checked her twice, but I love that book.
2: Hilariously, when I taught crime fiction at Arizona State for three years, every time we read Thief of Time, the kids all totally rejected it. Really? Thought, There's no way that this is actually the motive for the murder. They just couldn't believe it. You know, so um, it's kind of like that when the stakes are really low, the, you know, (laughs) because they just,
1: it was so funny. But but, when you're in it, it does not feel like the stakes are low. I'm sure Lauren, you did. Exactly.
3: Oh, yeah. I mean, just I I started watching um, The Chair on HBO and I, it was right after I had I had left teaching and I, I had to turn it off. I was like, I can't watch a department meeting. I've just gotten out of this. I do not want to sit through another one with the different personalities and, you know, everything that comes into play. That made me think of um, Philip Ross, The Human Stain. Have you all read that when it just comes to... Um, Departmental dynamics and faculty egos, and uh, just everything at, at play um, at the university. Yeah, it's it's such a rich, rich setting on both sides of the desk, right? Both.
2: Yeah, both we the even talked about faculty mystery, faculty, you know, yeah. as part of dark academia, but there are quite a few grind novels in which it's not the students that are at play, it's the faculty that are, you know, the administration and so forth. And, so. And each,
0: each department has its own kind of, you know, pathology or different flavor yeah. to it. Um, my wife was in the physics department and uh, there was this character there who uh, was this brilliant young guy who essentially the, the, the professors enabled him to live on campus without telling anybody, you know, I mean, and he was able to like take showers there and uh, sort of a mascot of the physics department, it's fun. Oh. Are there any questions from the audience? Um, not many, which is why I'm kind of freestyling a little oh, bit. Okay. Um, let's see. Uh, just people that are weighing in about uh, how intriguing the book sounds, and um, well, one question is about: Does each of you have a you know favorites when it comes to uh, mystery novels or crime fiction? Who are some hmm. of your faves? Lauren, you want to kick it off?
3: Well, I mean, I've been reading all these dark academia mysteries, so I'll go ahead and plug Ashley's book for another time. Um, In My Dreams, I Hold a Knife uh, by Ashley Winstead here. There's also, if you like, those return to campus uh, group of friends who've done something bad and it unravels uh, when they return. Uh, there's the girls are also nice here which is another mm-hmm. one of those return to campus mysteries that I highly recommend um, I just finished the cloisters by Katie Hayes yeah. which is a Wonderful different book. mystery I yeah that. yeah really, it's really
2: super the tarot stuff is Phenomenal. And yes. it's
3: very gothic. I mean, the setting yes. itself feels very gothic. So that's really wonderful. It's, and it's
2: in a museum. It's set at the Cloisters, the Metropolitan Museum of Arts, medieval. Um, but, you know, there again, a museum is not that different, you know, than it, academia. scholarship.
3: Uh, you know, the scholarship, yeah. the comp- competition of finding that first discovery feels very similar sure. to how it can be in an academic field when you're writing and publishing articles. Yeah.
2: Very much so. Lisa I'm Lutz you,
0: had a I'm fun glad you one. you it. What, Patrick? Lisa Lutz had a good one, too. Didn't she, a couple of years ago? The, the uh, uh, Setna University?
1: Yeah, she the did. The
0: accomplice, I think it was.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah.
0: She's good. Yeah. Really good.
1: Um, How about you, Ashley? Anything you so, Yeah. Recently, this is not dark academia, but I was totally just, it felt immersed in You're Invited by Amanda Giatissa, which is um, a book that came out in August. And it is about um, an influencer who goes missing from her wedding in Sri Lanka. Yeah. And her best friend whose ex-boyfriend she was marrying is accused of you know, her, her possible murder. And it is uh, it was pitched as crazy rich Asians meets Lucy Foley, like the guest list. Yeah. And it was so spot on. So if you like like extravagant wedding, over the top weddings with a whole cast of nefarious characters and nonstop, you know, uh, sinister action hidden behind facades of well-meaning people, um, it's that that novel is fabulous. And then of course I have to plug um, May Cobb's *My Summer Darlings* for folks who haven't read that book. May is just phenomenal. Um, and I love that she's just making a name for herself and carving out this brand of East Texas women behaving very, very badly and drinking copious amounts of whiskey um, and, and, you know, getting up to slightly murderous things, maybe. I just love that. She does it so well.
2: She's a really wonderful author. If you're interested in the Jayatissa, I did a, a Zoom event with her she's in Sri Lanka so we had to adjust the time Patrick you were alas because you you like her a lot um you were in Hawaii
0: once again when a little when we bit smitten that. with her she's uh she's a lovely <laughs> very
1: she really amazing uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah the
0: she's dark awesome. uh the dark wedding subgenre could be kind of an extension of the you know sort of the <laughs> locked room
1: <laughs>
0: idea yeah. uh a question I was just going to say a question has come in um for Lauren. Uh, Sherry would like to know. She says, congratulations on your debut. What did you, what did you do when you found out your book was going to be published?
3: <laughs> well, thanks, Sherry. I um I decided to leave teaching. That was kind of the big, <laughs> the big thing that I I decided to do when I, I got the book deal. As I knew I really, when you're especially since I'm a German professor, those, those jobs are few and far between. And as much as I love teaching, I never was able to choose where I lived. And so writing, of course, you can write anywhere. And so getting, getting the book deal, finding out the novel was going to be published. Um, and I actually, I I got a two book deal. So knowing that I had not just the first book to write, but also the second, um, that, that meant that I could live where I wanted, which was just a huge after, you know, a decade of, you know, moving for a PhD and then teaching these different visiting professor jobs, that was a huge and amazing thing for me to be able to live where I wanted to live.
1: Wonderful.
0: There is one question that just came in, um, and you've talked about both, talked about this a little bit, but um this person on YouTube says, "I'd love to hear a bit about each of your writing processes. So, how do you get the words out each day? Any rituals? Any word counts? What are your? What's your process?"
1: Go ahead, Lauren. Okay, Um,
3: well, I I feel um, because of kind of certain more personal things right now in my life, I don't have the ritual that I used to have. I will say one thing that I've noticed um, that I do is I I will write uh, a lot. So I'll get 60,000 words of a story start and then i go back and make an outline which i don't know if it is the, the most productive or the best way to work but that seems to be how i work is i start and i just need to get the ideas out and then i go back and i i find the structure or i create the structure and then you know put everything into that structure so that's one thing i do i i used to write in the mornings and i would try to get you know 1000 2000 words but i've found recently and maybe it's because of the book tour and stuff having to do a lot of this more social media um self-promotion um, that I tend to do that now in the morning. And then I'm I'm writing in the afternoons. It used to be, I couldn't write after I ate. Like if I ate lunch, I, the creativity went away with the meal or something. So I would wait to eat, you know when I got my writing furiously done, but but that seems to have all changed recently. So I don't know, Ashley, if you, maybe you have a better system or structure.
1: No, I'm just the weirdest, the weirdest creature because I'm so finicky. I do the exact same thing every day. Um, I eat the same breakfast and lunch and I just work, you know, I I wake up, I make my coffee, make my breakfast, sit down in the exact same spot, um, write until lunch at a certain time where I break, eat the same thing, come back and write until my husband drags me away. Um, you know, with like the need to actually be a human being in the world. So, um, and if anything, like deviates from this very strict routine, it's like immediately banished. Like Cats, if they're running around too much, they have to leave. Like my husband, if he comes in and asks me a question, he's <laughs> like banished to, you know, the other side of the house. Um, and so, yeah, if there's any deviation, then it's like all my creativity leaves as well. I love it. Discipline.
3: I think so many, so many writers, I mean, you really do, you have to have a discipline, a routine. It's almost like athletes who have to wear a certain sock, right? That, that routine becomes the lucky sock. If you can just keep to the routine, then you can get the work done. But it, yeah. if that sock is in the wash or something happens to the routine, then it, it just, it, it really does feel kind of precious and, um, ephemeral in that way, right? That it can just disappear.
0: I'm wearing my wimpy
1: sock, which is this necklace. What's (laughs) that? I said,
0: music or no music?
1: Oh, no music whatsoever for me. Silence, Okay. Yeah.
3: Normally, no music, but there are certain. So one of the scenes in The Resemblance, which takes place in a basement I wrote listening to the same song on repeat. There was something about just the the themes of that song and the kind of darkness of that song that helped me write that scene. Um, and it was actually what I was going to call the novel first. Ashley, I don't know if you're like this, but whatever my novel is called in my word doc is not normally what it ends up being called. Never. Of I've um, <laughs>
1: never struggled with the title. Yeah, it's always changed.
3: Yeah, it always. Did. So I had called this novel in my head and in the word doc grotesque animal, mm-hmm. uh, which comes from an of Montreal, which is an Athens band song called the past is a grotesque animal. There's actually a reference really early on to that to that song in the novel itself. And that's what it was called. But my editor felt like it sounded like a young adult mystery title, which did not mm-hmm. fit the themes of this of this novel. So it changed. But that Think that's every once in a while to get into a certain headspace, maybe, but most of the time I'm with Ashley. I, I tend
1: to like to work in silence. Yeah. I love thinking to music, you know, in the yeah. shower, on a walk. Um, but then once I get to, and I will do the exact same thing where there's like two songs per book that I listen to on ad nauseum, on repeat, and then silence when I write. So um really, really fun person to live with
2: over here between yeah so the lesson from all this is that writers have to have understanding families <laughs> spouses whatever exactly. it is ladies it's really been a pleasure to listen to you both um lauren congratulations again on publishing the resemblance your seventh or is it eighth um but Seven, yeah. first published novel so very exciting and ashley it's wonderful to see you again the last housewife um we still have signed copies and i'm hoping that we'll see you for a book next
1: year at some point yeah i can't wait thank you so much barbara and patrick and lauren congratulations indeed love your book yeah enjoy thank the you. the rest all.
2: of your week it's so exciting to have you know like your first publication week so mm-hmm. enjoy it all that you can good night everybody thanks for joining us bye hello we hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.